Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. You can support this podcast at Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media. This week's Lawn Owner Marathon winner is Kitty Curley of Lawn Beach, California. Kitty will get a marathon decal showing that she watched 26.2 hours of her favorite crime show. To be next week's winner, sign up at lawandorderpodcast.com. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and our special guests, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedurals, baby. Law and order, law and order, law and order, law and order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast, we break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. As we wrap up Season 1 of These Are Their Stories, this week we're actually on vacation. So today we're going to share with you some of our favorite moments from the past year. We'll revisit some of our favorite episode discussions, the best guest stars, and the most compelling crimes that inspired the series. So if you've been telling a friend about our podcast, this might be the episode to recommend. First, we'll look back at some of our show reviews. Each of the Law & Order franchises have their own feel. We've asked our panelists to give their take on a certain episode. Sometimes we found some powerful acting and storytelling to talk about. We also pointed out when things didn't always seem to add up. Up next, you'll hear from guests Chris Green, Mike Doty, Sarah Homan, Sarah D. Bunting, and Tara Ariano. Now let's look at the first half of this episode, Season 14, Episode 20, Everybody Loves Raimundo's. Open on the crowded, exclusive Raimundo's restaurant, a young woman is coaxed by a gangster into committing a cliché. Oh, I mean, (laughs) singing in Italian in an Italian restaurant. Shots ring out, two men are dead. One victim is a made man, the other is a Hollywood producer. Briscoe and Green learns that everyone really does love Raimondo's. This includes celebrities, judges, and the chief of detectives. So, Chief, what the hell happened? Well, my back was to the bar, but uh, from what I gather, the guy on the floor got into a beef with some moron at the bar who pulls his piece, blam, 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 fires off a couple more for good luck, and he's out the door. And uh, the victim in the booth wasn't involved? He caught a stray, poor bastard. You get a look at the shooter? White, late 40s, heavy sets, dark hair. Mob guy? No witnesses say he goes by the name Bumpy. Hmm. Well, that answers my question. The trigger guy is a wannabe named Bumpy. When they scoop him up, he confesses to shooting the guy at the bar because he was heckling the singer. 
And so ends another eight-minute episode of Law & Order. (laughs) (laughs) But wait, wait, there's a twist. The bullet in the mobster is different than the one in the movie producer, Tommy Mitchell. They learn Sonny King, the author of a mob book based on Raimondo's, feels like he's been shortchanged. Sonny's alibi is solid, so the detectives think it was a paid hit. Briscoe goes undercover in a pool hall where we learn, God damn, he can really play some pool. (laughs) He convinces Minnesota really, really fats to fix him up with a hitman. The sting leads them to Denny Rogus, but the New Jersey Organized Crime Task Force takes Rogus for themselves, and they say they're not giving him back. So, Chris, uh, if you were out and about having some crack, uh, what karaoke song would you be willing to shoot someone over to shut him up? Okay, basically, I think uh, karaoke... In fact, I actually think that what that woman did in any public setting is one of the most self-indulgent, narcissistic things. I'm glad... Let me say some... Let me spill some tea here, gents. I'm glad she got shot after that type of display. (laughs) I'm at a restaurant. I'm probably paying a lot of money, especially with how exclusive that Raimondo's place is. I'm not really interested in listening to her unsolicited and unrequested singing. So listen, that was a nice bit of drama to get the episode going, but a, a tiny part of me was also like... Good, fine. I mean, I kind of want to do that. If someone either... The big thing in Ireland is whipping out an acoustic guitar. I'll tell you, once an asshole does that at a a public event, I am finished. (laughs) I am leaving. If if I haven't even started my meal, I'm like, all right, you know what? Get me the bill. Thanks a lot for your time. So, yeah, listen, uh, very annoying, very irritating. But hey, what can you do? I 100% agree with you. I even get annoyed when you're at a restaurant and someone like makes a toast at another table that's like a birthday toast to like somebody. <laughs> I'm like, you know what? This is a public place, goddammit. Also, I would also have been annoyed, by the way, by the professional opera singer working at that restaurant because there's nothing worse than when your, you know, Linguini arrives and then you just have mm-hmm. to sit there and not do anything because you have to listen to some <laughs> unsolicited <laughs> opera performance. Yeah. <laughs> and some of those Italian places. Places, I've noticed they like go around the tables while they're singing so as in everybody gets exposed to them for a few seconds and <laughs> like you do kind of have to stop you know what I mean and you do you can't be eating as they're sitting there beside you so, yeah it's awful I agree Rebecca it's and you awful. have to passively aggressively like put the fork down yeah like, oh, okay go ahead uh, but you know mobsters eat there so the Italian food must be good yeah it must be a mate it must be like mama used to make am I right <laughs> yeah well, that's what everybody seems to think everybody loves Raymundo I mean, everybody, Absolutely. the chief of D's, as they call him, which is a hilarious nickname. Yeah, I don't think I want to be called chief of D's. Who, by the way, was wearing a <laughs> Especially not these outfit. days, no. Yeah, he, he and Raimundo are wearing matching outfits. I don't know if you noticed that. Like, oh. basically same tie, same suit. That was a little oh. bit of blue. Judges love Raimundo. You go to Raimundo's often? Once a week. Did you know Thomas Mitchell? Just to say hello to him. I knew he was a movie producer. That's about it. He has one out now. Al dente. About a mob family. Runs a restaurant supposedly based on Ramondas. Doesn't it spoil your appetite, Your Honor? Eating with gangsters? That's all part of the charm. That's the beauty of Ramondas. That's the point. Successful people from every field. The political world, the entertainment world. The underworld. Everybody loves Ramondas. It's, it was really. It's a high society place, Rebecca. High. You know what I mean. All the who's who is going there. If only us normal peasants could get to go <laughs> there, right? Classy. We get it. We get it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I hear you. Uh, we start with the squad finding a body laid out in a cemetery, arms crossed, eyes plucked out, and a bag of drugs shoved down his throat, or as they call it, Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> laid out between the graves, covered in a tarp. Laid out. Yeah, on his back, hands crossed across his chest like he's in a coffin. 
found him. Gardner came in to clear the path. No clothes, no ID, no eyes. And he was sodomized. It's got ritual killing written all over it. Pluck out the eyes, arrange the limbs, cover the body, then dump them in a churchyard. Could be a satanic cult. Or someone who wants us to think it is. <laughs> Stabler and Benson learned that the victim is Richard Antrim, a gay prostitute. His last address turns out to be a loft where some evangelical teens are putting on a Halloween Satan house. Which was great. Yeah. <laughs> this is where you walk through and they try to scare you with the horrors of fornication and women's reproductive medicine. Yes. That's right. That's right. Uh, Richard Sell has a text message about an after-hours meeting and several calls to an office of a church. That's where they meet Reverend Jeb Curtis, an anti-gay preacher whom they suspect of having an affair with the male prostitute. They confront Curtis with DNA found at the scene that is a partial match to his. Stabler brings Curtis back to his own church and playing on his faith gets Curtis to confess that he is responsible for Richard's death. Yep. So the victim is at first unidentified. How do you feel about their plan to lure the killer out of hiding at the hospital? Oh, you mean when uh, Benson and Stabler go undercover as doctors? Yes. Doctors doing nothing, just standing in the hallway with a clipboard? Uh, it's not a good with plan. With a mannequin in the, in, the, uh, in the bed. It's not a good plan, but I feel like you glossed over one of the more interesting aspects of this episode, and it's not that the crows picked out the eyes and that Tamara Tooney literally wants them to catch the crows. <laughs> it is that Ice-T shows his incredible knowledge of the Myanmar drug trade yes. by being able to identify. Oh, the- yeah, that, that, that they put, and, and that the, the drug cartel puts a logo, a logo. on their ecstasy. <laughs> Tablets have writing on them. U-W-S-A. United Wash State Army. That a new rap group? That's a rebel group based out of Southeast Asia, one of the biggest drug producers in the world. Hey guys, it's from us. That to me, it was supposed to be like I think the red herring that you know diverts us from the whole later church thing. But yeah, hiding out in the hospital, pretending to be doctors, but not actually doing any doctor things except standing around, like basically with your walkie-talkie in your hand. Not Waiting so for discreet. the killer to come and finish the job. <laughs> Not super discreet, no. See, somewhere there was an administrator going, you put a recessa Annie in a private room, that's like $4,000 a day. <laughs> Thanks, Obama. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, my, uh, my one disappointment with this episode um, was that there wasn't a good iced tea looks like. <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> or what do you mean by that? Well, there's looks like he, that, like, a good SVU is like, looks like the captain went down with the shit. <laughs> You know, looks like the astronaut crashed the capsule. Looks like mom forgot to make the bed. Scrap and I throw these back and forth with each other, make make them up. And the best one was, looks like Keith Moon was voted greatest drummer of all time for the fourth year in a row by the readers of Drummer's World magazine. So of all the SWAT raids to not have something go wrong, the cops kick in the doors at the evangelical haunted house called the Satan's House. This and is our Satan's House. Your what? It's a play. People walk through it like a haunted house to show them what happens if they lead a sinful life. <laughs> what was your sin? Having a partial birth abortion. You dream this stuff up? No, I'm not a writer. We, we buy the Satan's House, kid. It tells us how to do everything, like using raw meat for the dead baby. Isn't it great? Oh, this coffin over here, it's for an AIDS victim. Satan dances around it singing, I tricked him into thinking he was born gay. <laughs> We're not afraid to use humor. We're not afraid to use humor. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, I really thought there wasn't enough Satan's house in this episode. We got the tease at the beginning, mm-hmm. we revisit at the end, but like, I, I know that's a real thing, 
I mean, I like produce radio stories about it. It was like an actual thing. I really wanted to see a little bit more yeah. of the Satan's House like art scene. Like, is there a Satan's House like musician like playing the guitar in the background, singing like a good like sin song? Well, it was it was clearly in Bushwick uh, when it, when we first saw it. I thought it was going to be. Um, some arty thing, and this has happened before, mm-hmm. where some some actory hipstery people put on a Hell House as like as like an ironic thing, and they get the actual kit from whatever organization does it. This happens all the time, and I just I wanted some some Bushwick theater nerds, and I was I was a little disappointed that you were disappointed they were doing it unironically. Yeah, and why would they do it in Bushwick? <laughs> like what? <laughs> like they would do it on Long Island. <laughs> Everybody in Bushwick would be taking Molly and going for fun. <laughs> we actually start with Van Buren in the car with her two sons. They're listening to Chris Cross's Jump Jump on the radio, which is God's way of saying some bad shit is about to go down. <laughs> when she pulls over at an ATM, she's accosted by two teens, and she blows one away right in front of her kids, who forever after made their beds and cleared the table without being asked. <laughs> First time in 12 years I fire my gun. Hey, if you hadn't, we'd be outlining you and Charles. Lenny, they couldn't have been more than 16. No idea, no gun. The other one had. You shot the one without the gun? They tried to rob me. Look, it happened fast. Oh. What? The dead kid. The entrance wound was in his back. The cop killed James, who was a minor, black, retarded, unarmed, and shot in the back. And the only difference from today's news stories is back then, it was still politically correct to call him retarded. That's true. Oh, I had made that note, yeah. They have no problem throwing that word around. (laughs) The chief of detectives thinks this is a bad shooting, and though Briscoe wants to stay out of it, Logan wants to find the accomplice and the vanishing handgun. Now, detecting the bullet went through the other guy and into James. The detectives look for a kid with his arm in a sling. They capture 14-year-old Zach Rowland. He says there was no gun, and James had harmlessly asked for some money. Now, over Claire's objection, Jack hauls Van Buren in front of the grand jury and suggests race played a factor in her decision to use deadly force. America is shocked, shocked, (laughs) when the grand jury fails to indict a police officer for killing an unarmed, retarded black miner in the back. Though cleared of wrongdoing, Van Buren wants someone held responsible for James's death. Now, this is a rare early episode where we see Van Buren doing something more than just walking back to her desk. That's right. She has children. She has a family. She has a car. Who knew she had a car? She has a whole life. She takes her. She has a husband who has a job, so she takes her kids to dinner and movies. It was really, really nice. This Van Buren-centric episode, for me, was a revelation. And not only because it was Van Buren, also because, and this might be like a spoiler alert, Esipatha Murkison's performance in this episode was extraordinarily good, I think. Oh, she's amazing. Sarah, what would you think about seeing Van Buren sort of in a different environment? I loved it. I mean, it's so rare to see any of the detectives or any of the DA outside of their work environment. It's one of those rare episodes where you get kind of a glimpse into their personal life. And I just like seeing that balance of her being a mom, but still being that badass who's going to pull that gun out of her purse and blow somebody away if she needs to. Again, you know, this is one of those rare episodes where it breaks formula in its opening, where we aren't watching two people coming back from the theater bickering about their seats and stumbling over a dead body. Right. (laughs) We see one of the lead characters outside of work and suddenly or at work or whatever and and suddenly getting themselves into a jam getting themselves into a big jam i mean when she 
it's funny. I hadn't actually seen this episode for years and years. And so when it first started, I was like, oh, yeah, wait, 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 what? She just shot somebody. Like, I was really, really sort of stunned as if I was seeing it again for the first time. And it felt very initially, and we'll get into this later, it felt very initially timely to me. It definitely broke format, but it also felt like a little bit of like a time warp watching this episode. Um, Yeah, it's definitely a time warp, but it's amazing how everything going on today, how timely it is. Yeah, I mean, we still have all these issues, but I love the twist of having the cop be both a woman and both you know and be black that was such a great little twist to make the story that much more interesting and compelling and having the what was he the chief of detectives or whatever he oh, was oh the chief is a real peach of a guy isn't oh, he what a what oh, he, asshole. Oh, i'm sure your lieutenant's a nice lady logan but uh, that doesn't mean she should be running a squad well what is it that bothers you Burnett? that she's wearing a skirt or that she's black for your information I got A-plus in politically correct. I love Afro-Americans. I love gyno-Americans. But if one of them happens to shoot a kid for no reason, that cop's gonna get nailed. He loves gyno-Americans. Gyno-Americans and (laughs) Afro-Americans. Gyno-American. I never heard that term. Tell me he made up that term. He made up that term. It's not an urban dictionary, is it? I don't know. But also the fact that he was determined, like, a cop shoots somebody that it was wrongful shooting. He's going to take him down. That did not feel as timely as, you know, as the rest of the episode to me. Now, let's look at the rest of the episode. We meet the frail wife, Jillian, and her daughter, Hannah, who vouch for Kent Webster as a family man and say Dia is a crazy woman. Meantime, the DNA test shows Dia is the mother, but the father is not Mr. Letty. Benson and Finn bluff Webster into thinking the DNA proves he's the dad. Then, the greatest legal mind of his generation comes up with this defense. Dia gave him a hand crank, and his Ziggy did a quantum leap into her uterus. Nice, nice, nice. Classy. I quit. I quit. Are you talking about the manual release? Yeah. The team discovers that Webster's... Father, a powerful judge, arranged for the fraudulent adoption papers. Then paparazzi, who are apparently having a slow day, catch Webster and Dia kissing in a hotel. So the cops respond to his disturbance at Dia's, and they find her dead on the floor and Webster rummaging around. Now, Webster's alibi holds up against Dia's time of death, so they look at Mrs. Webster. She confesses, although she's not strong enough to lift the heavy crystal used to bash (laughs) Dia's head in. Though Benson and Amaro know it's really the teenage daughter, they let Jillian Webster plead guilty to murder and spend her remaining days in prison. So, Webster's paternity alibi, is this the greatest moment in television or is it just me? It's not the greatest, no. It is definitely the ickiest moment of this episode, hearing Scott Bakula of Quantum Leap talk about... My wife has been ill and I... This is incredibly embarrassing. Go on. In a moment of weakness, I let her give me a manual release about his manual release. And the note that I made, both mentally and on my paper, is A, he said that on TV, is that okay? And B, ew, 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 ew. (laughs) (laughs) Sarah, your reaction? I just, maybe I've just been watching too much SVU for too long. That barely even registered to me. I just couldn't get past the fact that, as you deemed him, the, you know, second greatest legal mind of his generation, thought that this would fly, 
and then did just such a bad job of acting it. Well, I don't think Scott Bakula could even bring himself to look in the camera when he said those lines. He, he didn't just turn away from them. He turned away from America. This is incredibly embarrassing. Well, and I, I don't know. I mean, they're somewhere like they're sort of shooting. They're almost shooting glances at the camera like, <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, but whenever um, Ice-T has to wear like a fake beard in jail... <laughs> like the the long sort of like um, wing sun fighter beard that's like you're not even t- that's obviously drier lint you're not even trying what's the budget for that 17 cents okay well let's recap the first part of this episode Corpus Delecti uh, Briscoe and Curtis get a call to a horse stable where Mr. Wicketts has passed away suspiciously he may be an expensive show horse but like white men he can't jump <laughs> The cops first suspect Mr. Wicketts was killed by his owner for the insurance money, or so Daddy Warbuck's daughter won't have to ride a loser. When they learn several high-priced horses from the same stable have died mysteriously, they zero in on breeder Lyle Christopher. He's put himself out to stud. (laughs) sleeping with rich older women and selling them crappy horses. After going from sugar mommy to sugar mommy, the team then finds that Christopher's new fiance, Ruth Thomas, has gone on a three-month cruise, but she never got aboard the ship. Now, Rebecca, you thought that this episode of Law & Order broke format right from the first scene. It did. We first see uh, Briscoe and Curtis at the shooting range. This is a, a rare cold open that starts with the cops rather than someone finding a body. Um, and uh, yes, it is, it's very endearing to see the difference, you know, the, the generation gap sort of highlighted between the two of them, that Curtis is great at shooting and Briscoe pretends his goggles are distorted because in the very next scene, when they actually go to the crime scene, we see that Curtis just wants to bag on the case and Briscoe is the one who knows there's something here that's worth investigating because he's old school. He's natural police, as they say on the wire. So he, He's natural police, but he was like surprised surprisingly sweet and sensitive to the horse having been killed. Like, he's like a cynical guy who can, like, step over the body of a hooker and make, like, a snarky remark. Well, he never put a lot of money down on a hooker, but he has <laughs> Exactly. On a yeah. That's right. That's his personal connection to the case that helps him take it personally. But, like, in all 456 episodes of Law & Order, has there ever been a cause of death like this? Where they stuck a wire in the <laughs> mouth and anus and then turned the electricity on? Probably on SVU. I bet that's... <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. Probably on SVU. There's nothing depraved that hasn't happened on SVU. Now, at first, Curtis is, is pissed that they're even doing this, and he gets a smackdown from Van Buren. You may remember he says... I didn't become a detective to investigate dead animals. Oh, come on, Wilbur. Somebody killed a horse. You're not going to let him get away with it, are you? What am I, in some kind of trainee program? You've got your assignment, detective. Fine. You want me to question the horse's friends and neighbors? Find out if maybe he was having some problems in his love life? It's a nothing case. Say something one more time. One more time. Right, right. Van Buren hates Curtis, and that's one of my favorite dynamics <laughs> on the really, show. Tara, do you really think that Van Buren hates Curtis, or is that just extra textual? I think she warms up to him over the years, but this, as I recall, is like early in his tenure on the show. This might be his first season. Yeah, and she um, loves she loves Briscoe. Like, the two of them yeah. are like two peas in a pod, and she has so much disdain because he's like a little bit smarmy and he like always is like real eager and I just doesn't like it and I love the shade that she throws at him I love it it's like she's like for me the Greek chorus sort of throwing shade at the guy who's going to end up being Julia Roberts boyfriend <laughs> yeah I think she, she I agree that she loves Briscoe I don't know that I'd go so far as to say that she hates 
Curtis across the board. She certainly does in this scene, but he does have a bit of the know-it-all about him. And I think that rubs her the wrong way because he doesn't always respect her authority properly, possibly because she is a woman. Uh, Possibly. (laughs) (laughs) When you support us at Patreon at just $5, you will get exclusive content. Like the Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club, Laura's Rage Walk, The Crime Writers on After Show, and Married with Podcast with Rebecca and me. Start getting your exclusive perks for just $5. Join our own elite squad at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. That's patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Uh, which cops are your favorite detective team? Favorite law and order detective team. Briscoe and Green. Oh, Benson and Stabler. Uh, yeah, Briscoe and Logan. SVU, Benson and Stabler. I'm going to be controversial and just say one. It's just solo Olivia Benson. It's definitely a Briscoe and Green. I love uh, Briscoe and Green. Briscoe and Logan. I'm, I'm sticking with them. Jesse L. Martin and, uh, and Jerry Orbach. Lenny and Ray. There is only one true cop, and that's the one LT, Anita Van Buren. But... <laughs> Goran and Eames. Um, God, I'm so bad with Law and Order. I know one of them ended up being a lesbian. I liked her. But I really love Lenny and Ray. Finn and Munch are the best yeah. duo oh, yes. of all time. Uh, uh, Orbach and Martin. Um. Yeah. Uh, who's the guy who gave up his eyes? I can never remember it. Uh, when he died, he, he left his eyes for science. Uh, I love the dude from Jurassic Park who was the geneticist. B.D. Wong. Yeah. B.D. Wong. He's not a detective. He's a psychiatrist. Elton and Babyface. I really like Munch and Ice T. But then I also really love Olivia and Stabler. Uh, I like I like uh uh, uh sexy and uh, <laughs> an old guy. <laughs> Getting guest actors to play the many lawyers, perps, and delivery men too busy to talk to homicide detectives is a hallmark of any Law & Order show. In fact, a lot of us can figure out who did it just by reading the opening credits. We like to take time to point out the guest stars who are famous, who go on to be famous, and the ones you just can't place. Up next, you'll hear from Aaron Fox, Cornell Wallace, Patrick Hines, and John Cryer. Hey, so in this episode, we have a Hey, It's That Guy. Hey, it's that guy. Who recognizes Mr. Morales? I do, I do. Yes. Julio from Dexter. Yes, yes. Julio from Dexter. Yeah, Detective Batista. What's the, what's the actor's name? Um, That one I don't it's know. I, David, that guy from Dexter? It's David Zayas. Yeah, okay. I, couldn't, I remember because I could not say his last name, and I was, I'm going to butcher this. Zayas, okay. Yeah, and then there's, what's his name, Larry Miller? Yeah, now talk about a weird cameo. Yes. It's comedian Larry Miller playing Larry Miller. <laughs> we don't do what we do for the money. What do you do it for? I can't speak for money, but then again, I don't drive a stick. Now, that's funny. It wasn't supposed to be. Look, Monty and I had a couple of drinks after a couple of shows a couple of decades ago. And you became a couple? <laughs> what, you went out and chased women? I heard rumors. What kind of rumors? I heard some kid... Accused him of inappropriate behavior. Like using the wrong fork? I don't think Monty would pay seven figures to cover that up. Yeah, talking about pedophile rumors and being... And how he doesn't drive a stick. Uh, oh, Which God. Line. <laughs> so awkward. <laughs> now, why doesn't Briscoe notice this is also Michael Dobson, the asshole club owner he arrested twice for murder? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> All right, I want to know who recognized Emilio Delgado? Who was that? Whoa. Was that the janitor? It was a janitor. Oh, 
Wow, I had no idea who I have no idea who I it think is. You got for. us. It's Luis yeah. from Sesame Street. Oh, Get shut the shut fuck out of no, here. No way. Yes. No. Last week, she told me not to come in Sunday night. I said I could put in for it anyway. No Whoa. fucking way. I got you good. I got you good. <laughs> I can't believe Whoa. it. That's incredible. I knew I recognized him, but fuck, it was so, the context was so different. But wait. Is this possible that there's a shared New York universe? <laughs> well, Gina, SVU? Gina has been on so many episodes of Law and Order at SVU. It's completely possible. This is what happened to Luis after, you know, he retired from whatever job he had on Sesame Street. Yeah, he w- got a job picking up dirty Kleenex at a fertility <laughs> clinic. <laughs> Jeez. Man, he fell hard. I'd rather live in the garbage can with Oscar. <laughs> he got a job unsticking magazine pages. <laughs> It's on the walls. It's on the chairs. Um, (laughs) The crime scene crew at that lab, they must have wanted to kill themselves after going through with the black light. We're looking for fingerprints. Oh, it's everywhere. Oh, God. We got three days. Oh, it'll take us seven years. All right. Let's just start with the place where there's not semen. (laughs) They cleaned up ground zero faster. (laughs) Oh, my God. All right, Kermit. It's our very special guest star, Mr. Harry Connick Jr. Oh. <laughs> yes. In the role of a Executive Assistant District Attorney David Hayden, it's Neo Crooner Harry Connick Jr. Officially, this isn't just a sex crime. It's the kidnapping of a high-profile figure. The DA has asked me to take a personal interest. There was an inside joke with one of his first lines. Anyone pick up on it? No. He said he's a second-generation district attorney. Yeah. Anybody get what that means? No. No. Harry Connick Sr. was the DA of New Orleans for about 30 years. Oh, I get it. Well, you you would think if he was so practiced in the language of district attorneys, he wouldn't introduce himself as the executive assistant to the district attorney. Oh. <laughs> exactly. I, I totally got that, too. I was like, wait, are you the secretary? Exactly. He's like the, the, the Dwight Schrute of the uh, DA's I, office. I take dictation for Jack McCoy. Um, yeah, no, that was that's really interesting. But can we just talk about the fact that from the moment... The moment that Harry Connick Jr. walked into that squad room, Olivia Benson was basically taken off her pants, like immediately, <laughs> like the eyes. Yes. And there was this whole pretense of like, I don't work well with people I don't trust. Bullshit. You saw Harry <laughs> Connick Jr. and you forgot about Cassidy like he was yesterday's tuna sandwich. You know, you know, Patrick, I don't know about you, but I couldn't hear any of the dialogue over Olivia Benson going sploosh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, my favorite thing is that his counter argument to that was like, sometimes I yell at my kids or something like, you know, she was like, I don't work well with people that I, 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 I get grum- little secret. I can be a little testy when I work with new people. I can be somewhat testy around my kids. You have kids? Boy and a girl. They live with my ex-wife in Cobble Hill. You? Me. Uh just getting over something. He's like, I get grumpy with my kids. And I was like, that, that was, was awkward. That, was, that wasn't smooth. Yeah. yeah. It's like his way of saying that he has kids was to sort of, I mean, it was throw some cold water on that. <laughs> that, first, that first date scene where they weren't really at a date, they were like after court or whatever. Super awkward. Super awkward. And yet another man on the show, like we needed yet another man on the show reminding Olivia Benson that she doesn't have children. We did not need that. <laughs> we also get to see someone before they were famous. Before. 
Christine Baranski. Baranski. Yes. Plays Masucci's sister and Beagle's wife. Of course, Christine got her big break as Trixie Fontaine in Speed Racer 10. <laughs> no, she did not. Uh, actually, her breakout role was the bitchy friend Marianne and Sybil. And as uh, Diane Lockhart on The Good Wife, also starring whom? The Good Wife? The Good Wife? Chris Knopf. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. John, did you guys uh, share a parking space at CBS or were you in the same parking lot or anything like that? Uh, with Baranski? Yeah, you ever seen her? Uh, I have seen her a few times. She actually came to the the pilot shoot of Two and a Half Men because Chuck Lorre actually produced Sybil. Hmm. Ah. So, and he produced Two and a Half Men. Uh, and it was lovely to see, uh, you know, it was a, a huge gesture of support. She's in the audience. It's like, oh my God, there's Christy Baranski. <laughs> she was on Law and Order that first season. Well, yeah. you know, oh, that that's is not what you remember. Yeah, that's not how I remember. What's her. so funny is that, you know, when I was doing that, was watching these episodes, I just kept, even though she was Mrs. Beagle or whatever her name was, like, I just think of her as Baranski, and I'm like, oh, the Baranski says this, Baranski says that. And the thing about this TV appearance by Christine Baranski, obviously, I mean, she was a stage actress before, right, John? Am I? Yes. Yeah. And it's, don't you think it's obvious in this episode that she was a stage actress before? <laughs> a lot of those stage actor affectations, like she's like. Smoldering looks. Smoldering the, looks, the <laughs> icy demeanor. You know what you're doing, Mr. Stone? Yes, Mrs. Beagle, I am attempting to put your brother in prison. By getting my husband killed? Because that's what you're setting in motion. Sort of line delivery <laughs> that doesn't exist like among seasoned television actors, which now she clearly is, was all present in this episode. Now, yeah. one more cameo of note in the role of arraignment judge Kleinman. It's David Cryer. What? Who's that guy? That's that's the father of John Cryer. What? Your dad was on this episode. In the pivotal role of arraignment judge. <laughs> uh, because it, had he not arraigned them in that fashion, the whole thing would have fell apart. That's and enough, Mr. LeClaire. Bail is set at $100,000. Cash or bond? Now, is, is, is it true your dad left Harvard Law to play Curly in Oklahoma at the Polka Dot Playhouse in Bridgeport, Connecticut? <laughs> yes, 100% true. Those are the kind of life choices that informed my uh, <laughs> my life. Uh, no, that's not true. He uh, he actually went to divinity school, though, uh, at Yale Divinity School. So there. Ah. Fancy man. Are you telling me the Internet's wrong about that? <laughs> I think the Internet is wrong about that. But your father was uh, in Broadway musicals, and he was also a regular on As the World Turns. Yes, As the World Turns. My favorite he was, uh, uh, he was an organized crime boss on that show. Oh, oh wow. Thank goodness for the Law and Order franchises and soap operas because they were the gainful employment for generations of New York actors. Was, did you ever like turn on like your dad's soap and like see him getting it on with the maid and be like really confused or <laughs> nothing like <laughs> he, that happened? He did not do a lot of getting it on on that show that I recall. I didn't watch a lot of soaps at that time when he was on. I got into them later. Like my favorite was during the writer's strike uh, because then they had to let the PAs write the shows. And there was this <laughs> wonderful period where shit got crazy on all the soaps <laughs> because none of them had paid writers. Uh, it was great. Uh, so that's when I got into them. But uh, but I think my dad was or had already moved on to doing like Evita or something. What's funny is he tends to get parts that are kind of stoic and serious. That's just, you know, what he's been cast mm -hmm. at. And of course, he's hilarious. Ah. So I don't, you know, I, I, I don't get why that is, but that's been his bread and butter for a while. And the man can sing. Oh, my God. Absolutely beautiful singer. He was obviously underutilized in this episode <laughs> really of Law underutilized. Yes. yes. The singing well, judge. I mean, that would have been <laughs> epic. <laughs> 
you're absolutely right. I didn't I didn't think of that angle. That's like Not only are block. you merely jailed, <laughs> you're really most sincerely jailed. Okay. <laughs> As true crime writers, the whole idea around these are their stories was to look at the real life cases that inspired the episode. Some of the details of the original crime make it in, some don't. Sometimes the one who gets away in real life winds up in jail in Dick Wolf's universe. But when picking shows to do, I really like to find crime stories that are compelling, maybe less known. Now, whether it's the guy who got shot because he heckled a singer or the guy who put a microchip into his girlfriend, these are the stories that are ripped from the headlines. Finally, we'll hear from Jack O'Brien, Paul Bay, Brady Carlson, and Lonnie Diane Rich. You think you know who did you it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Rip from the headlines. This episode takes cues from the real-life story of David Reimer. He and his twin brother were born in Winnipeg in 1965. As a baby, his penis was destroyed during a botched circumcision. His parents took him to a specialist who advised they remove the remaining sex organs and secretly raise the boy as a girl. To Dr. John Money, Reimer was critical to his research on gender neutrality. His theory was David, who had no memory of being a male, could live emotionally and functionally as Brenda, and his twin brother acted as the perfect control subject for his experiment. Reimer said Money made the twins act out sexually in front of him and showed them nude photos as part of the therapy. Despite Money's claims the ongoing treatments were successful, Brenda was terribly unhappy, tearing off her dresses and getting into fistfights at school. She told adults she felt like a boy. At age 14, he finally learned the secret of his gender. Reimer spent years having surgeries to recorrect the previous procedures. He suffered crippling depression, never fully coming to terms with the past. David Reimer committed suicide in 2004. Damn. Yeah, this is a very sad story, and almost all of the details are the same when we get to the second part of the episode, except for the murder. And the real-life doctor had a way more evil name than the doctor in the show, John Money. Money was his name, yes. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, So, Jack, how do you feel about it when Dick Wolf changes the true-life narrative so that the guy gets his comeuppance? Uh, I I enjoyed it. I think he deserved it, and so did the real-life guy, probably. And, yeah, I, I definitely think ha- having it end with a suicide would, would have been less satisfying, certainly, for the viewer. The the twin brother, I, I actually looked this up, and the twin brother also committed suicide before the one who had had the surgery. But, yeah, it was just a really, really dark, dark story. So Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can, uh, you know, look at the episode and think, well, what's rough for these twins is that they may be dealing with a, a murder rap. But if you know the real life story, it's a lifetime of pain? coming to pain, coming to terms with not just the sexual abuse that they suffered at the hands of their therapist, but this whole crazy experiment. The lies their parents told them is insane. It's totally insane. Those, I didn't think people in Canada behaved that way. I'm really, really shocked <laughs> Very and upset rude. by this. I, I I do have one just like plot They did say question, they were though. sorry, though. <laughs> Rip from the headlines. This episode shares some plot points with the 1971 case of John List. The papers dubbed him the bogeyman of Westfield, New Jersey. List was a church-going family man and bank vice president. 
When he lost his job, he kept the secret by leaving home, reading the paper, then returning for dinner. List feared financial ruin and worried his family was turning away from God. One day, List shot his wife and mother in the morning, then his two younger children after school. After making himself lunch, List went to his oldest son's soccer game, then killed him when they returned home. List left a note saying he murdered his family so they would go to heaven. He cancelled his mail and milk deliveries. He sent excuse notes to school. He cut his face out of all the family photos and left religious music playing on the radio. List did such a good job covering his tracks, the murders weren't discovered for a whole month. John List vanished. Eighteen years later, a neighbour spotted him on America's Most Wanted. He had been living a new life in Virginia. John List was given five life sentences and died in prison in 2008. So, guys, there are a lot of details here that are the same. And the big one, of course, is uh, I will kill you to send you to heaven. Holy crap. But the one that isn't in the Law & Order episode is I'm not going to kill myself, too. I'm going to run away and live like a new life without you. I bet he wasn't even religious in his new life. In his new life? <laughs> well, he says that he asked for forgiveness a lot of times, but uh, he never uh, asked to turn himself in. Wow. I'm blown away. By the way, what do you say to your son after the soccer game before you kill him? <laughs> Don't worry about trying harder next time. Yeah, that was a weak pass, right? We were playing a 3-4 defense, and do you know how to count? Bang. <laughs> like, like, well, like, parents get too involved these days in their kids' sports. That's all I'm saying. You know how you can tell this happened in the 70s instead of now? Because he could afford to not go to work for months and no one would know. <laughs> Nobody has that much savings stashed aside anymore. Well, you know, one of the, one of the real-life details was his wife had uh, syphilis and from a first husband and was an alcoholic. And he said, because this is what he says years later that drove him to it, but he felt belittled. These are all things he lost the job. These are all things that are stressors that in real life are things that investigators look for, saying this is these are the events that led to him snapping and killing. Sounds like he was a perpetual victim is what it sounds like to me. It sounds like he was one of those people who like, what did um, Elmore Leonard always say? Like when you run into an asshole in the morning, you ran into an asshole, you run into assholes all day, you're the asshole. Yeah. That's what this guy sounds like to me. Rip from the headlines. This episode is based on the road rage death of Deletha Word, who was chased off a bridge by an attacker in Detroit in 1995. In the real story, the 33-year-old got into a fender bender on a traffic-clogged bridge. The operator of the other car, Martin Welch, reached into Word's car and punched her through the window before pulling her out. Dozens of other motorists stuck in traffic got out to watch the assault, but no one intervened. Welch smashed Word's face into the trunk, ripped off her clothes and pulverised the car with a tyre iron. When one of Welch's passengers tried to restrain him, Word managed to get away. The six-foot-one football player chased the four-foot-eleven woman across the bridge, screaming that he was going to kill her. To escape, Word climbed over the railing and either jumped or fell 30 feet into the Detroit River. Two good Samaritans jumped in to rescue her. Word couldn't swim, but mistaking them for her attackers, refused their help. Her body was later found downstream. Welch was later convicted of second-degree murder in 1995. So... Damn it. That's the real story. Now, but you can see in both in the show and in real life, this is another instance of that phenomenon known as bystander syndrome. Mm -hmm. Which Now, why do you think they come back to this so often in, in the franchise? 
Well, it's a morality play about us, Kevin. That's what this whole thing is really about. It's about the human condition, like whether or not we actually are good enough to help our fellow citizen. So like you would be in that interrogation room (laughs) at midnight. What do you think, Brady? Well, it sheds a whole new light on that ABC series, What Would You Do? Apparently, that's not Law & Order spinoff, and I never realized it. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, you know, all the people who thought they saw a kid in a hot car, and they didn't actually, you know, it was a simulation. Right. I guess that was all just stemming from this episode of Law & Order. Yeah, no, I I think that they always come back to it, too, because, you know, it is sort of a classic New York thing. I mean, the New York crime story of, you know, arguably of the... Mid 20th century was the Kitty Genovese murder, which they have done a dozen times yes. variations right. on they, that. Yeah. They certainly have, and they've done a very literal variations on it, where like someone is they're the listen- SVU one absolutely. in the court, right, right? Absolutely, absolutely, and it, it's so much so that it's become told and retold that now the public story that everybody knows is actually completely inaccurate, which is really interesting too. So I definitely think it's it's partly that it's partly about New York and about the sort of perception that New Yorkers are not helpful, not friendly, keep to themselves. This episode is based on the real-life case of Stella Nickel. The Seattle-area woman had two hobbies, hard drinking and taking care of her fish aquarium. In June 1986, Bruce Nickel came home with a headache and took four Excedrin capsules, then suddenly collapsed. Doctors attributed his death to emphysema. Days later, Susan Snow died after taking two Excedrin. During the autopsy, the medical examiner detected the smell of almonds. Her capsules had been laced with cyanide. Panic set in as tampered bottles were discovered at stores in surrounding towns. Stella contacted police saying her husband had taken Excedrin before his death, and they found cyanide in her bottle too. She filed a wrongful death suit against the manufacturer. Then, she gave the police a second bottle of laced Excedrin she bought at a completely different store. Detectives thought the odds she purchased two tame bottles were slim. The crime lab found mingled with the cyanide was an algicide used in home aquariums. Later, Her adult daughter told police Stella had talked about killing Bruce for the insurance money. Stella said her husband became boring after he quit drinking. (laughs) Stella Nickel was sentenced to 90 years in prison. (laughs) He became boring after drinking. All right, that's my favorite detail of all time of any true crime story I've ever heard. Yeah, don't get sober because bitch will kill you. (laughs) (laughs) I need a headache. I got a headache. Here, take one of these. (laughs) <laughs> so tell us the different elements of the real nickel story. What do we get here, Lonnie, that went into the, this uh, fictionalized version? Well, I think her, you know, poisoning a bunch of people to make it look like her husband was just one of a number of victims. <laughs> I love the the lawsuit, you know, the <laughs> suing the people. That's just like adding insult to injury. That is bold, you know, for a murderer to be like, okay, I'm going to set you up for this, you know, terrible thing that's happened to all these people, and then I'm going to sue your ass, you know? I thought this was about the Tylenol poisonings. No. I didn't realize it was about the Excedrin case, which explains why the pain medication on the show was called Nisedrol. <laughs> which is a super weird fake name for a drug, but sounds a lot like Excedrin. So that's interesting. I like the parallel with the chemicals, the fish aquarium and the photography kind of situation. Like it's very specific, like industry specific. So basically the deal is if I kill you, no offense, Kevin, I'm just going to yeah, throw it out there. It's easy to do. Go ahead. If I kill you, rather than just lie and just say you died in some other way, the best course of action for me to take is to kill a whole bunch of other people. Well, here's the thing that is true in in both cases, that the wife did such a good job murdering her husband 
She was never able to get to the second part of her plan, which was the lawsuit, which is why she had to resort to killing other people. Got it. Because because they never found the cyanide the first time. Yeah, that's why they had to go back and she had to get the body exhumed. Because she thought that someone would, you know, the medical examiner would pick it up at the first death. <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't have Goran there right. to, <laughs> to smell the mouth. Exactly. So she, when you have a wife going, no, that is not a natural death, look harder, you know, <laughs> then you know that you've got an issue going there. And I'm just wondering if someday I am actually going to be called in to testify based on the conversations we've been having here tonight. <laughs> well, that is going to do it for us. Thanks for a great first season. We'll be back on our regular schedule in just two weeks. You can tweet to us at Law and Order Pod or follow us on Instagram at These Are Their Stories Podcast. Leading our panel, as always, is Rebecca Lavoy. Our newsreader was Cy Freider. The theme music has been composed and performed every week by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing by Henry Lavoy. Content assistance from Travis Roy. Lily Flynn handles promotions. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others discover this program just like you did. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with U.S. Copyrights Act fair use exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thanks to you folks in the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. If you want to know what episodes we're talking about in our upcoming shows, go to lawandorderpodcast.com. Sign up for our newsletter and for a chance to be our next Law & Order Marathon winner. These Are Their Stories was recorded in Square Egg Studio and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn that thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay.